We are in the uh, season of Lent. This is the second Sunday of Lent. And uh, Lent is the season in which the church all around the world for centuries now, having uh, joined with Israel's longing for the coming of Jesus uh, during Advent, and having celebrated God's arrival in the world in Jesus during Christmas, and having taken the season between Christmas and Lent, the season of Epiphany, to reflect on the life and teaching and ministry of Jesus, we now come to the season of Lent, which is the time where we prepare our hearts to journey with Christ to the cross, um, the time where we anticipate uh, a season of suffering and lament, a season of reflection on uh, our own sin and on the sins of the world that Christ bore uh, on our behalf. And uh, of course, which leads us into Holy Week and eventually to Easter Sunday. Um, so that's where we are in this grand church calendar, and today marks the second Sunday of the season of Lent. And as a church, we've encouraged one another uh, to enter into this season together through uh, participating in our Lent guide, which is basically just a set of scriptures and prayers that each of us are invited to read together and pray together the same scriptures and prayers every day for this 40-day season. And so, um, like Ken said, if you want to grab one of those books, they're at the office this week, but we would encourage you, if you haven't started yet, it's not too late. Um, and so that's where we are. As we go through this season, we're, uh, we're calling the series The Bright Sadness, and, um, <clears throat> which is really uh, kind of a description of how life feels at times. And uh, sometimes it's a little bit of a stretch, but other times that's exactly uh, what things feel like. Um, one of the ways that Christians have historically observed the season of Lent is through the discipline of fasting, which is voluntarily abstaining um, from food or some other comfort or pleasure. Biblically, fasting always refers uh, to the abstaining of food, but uh, throughout history, Christians have kind of taken that principle and applied it to other areas of life. So it's been kind of fun to hear some of the, the ways from you guys that you are fasting uh, this Lenten season. And some, it's something similar like giving up dessert or coffee or alcohol or something like that. And uh, that is, uh, for, for some of us, that's a huge undertaking. And I uh, commend you for doing it. Others um, are fasting from things like negative self-talk or the need to be in control, right? Which is, sounds way harder than giving up chocolate, <laughs> doesn't it? Meaning that kind of fast begins to actually expose some of the idols of our hearts and the inability we have to actually live the life we want to live. And so uh, wherever you are in the journey, and if it's, if it's alcohol or chocolate or something like that, then, um, then stay strong with that and do that and let that hunger, that longing, that yearning um, bring your heart to Jesus. And for those of you that are actually uh, doing these fasts to expose your inability, um, and to follow Jesus in your own strength, uh, God's, God's peace to you as well. Um, our theme for the readings this week, and, and as well for the sermon this morning, is humility. And uh, we're going to get to humility eventually this morning, but uh, I read somewhere that humility is so shy that the moment you start talking about it, it hides. Right? Um, and so we're going to get to it eventually, but we're going to start by looking at the idea um, of pride. So, remember how the story of the Bible goes. 
The Bible teaches that reality begins with God. That God is this great king, this creator of all things, who's the source and the goal of everything good. And it's all about him. Right? And he speaks creation into existence, this beautiful, good, created world. And within that world, eventually he gets to the creation of humanity, of mankind, men and women, made in his image and likeness, which is something that's not said about any other part of creation in the Genesis account. We're told that all the other stuff God made was good, but we're told about humanity uniquely, that we are made in God's image and likeness. Which for ancient Near Eastern readers of this original story, or probably hearers of this original story, the term image and likeness of God wasn't brand new. It's the way they referred to kings and royalty. So those that were in power over Persia or, or whoever it was at the time, Egypt, were referred to, that king would be referred to as the image of God, essentially God's functional replacement on earth. And so when the biblical uh, hearers would come across the Genesis passage and go, all men and women are made in God's image and likeness, that was a revolutionary idea. That it's not just for kings and rulers, but this dignity this inherent sense of worth and value of life is printed on every single human soul that's ever been made. It's a beautiful idea. So you have this great, good, glorious creator king of a god, and then you have him forming humanity in his image and likeness and imparting dignity and value, not just because they bear his image, but because part of what that means is that they are called to be his representatives or his stewards in the world that he's made. So to be an image bearer of God has a vocational aspect to it. That he says, care for this earth. The garden is a metaphor for all life and all work. Tend to it. Work it. Maximize its potential for flourishing. Make this simple garden into something that's beautiful and feeds humanity. And being entrusted with that vocation as image bearers of God also gives this incredible sense where we get to share in the glory of the one creator king. So we are image bearers and have dignity, but throughout the biblical story, there's all, always this line of distinction between creator and creature, between God and humanity. Though we're made in his image and likeness and reflect his glory to the world and participate in his work, there's always been this distinction between creator and creature. And as the story unfolds, we see that humanity begins to rebel against that distinction, starting with the very first sin in Adam and Eve, going, we no longer want to live in a God-centered world, we want to live in a self-centered world, a world that's about us. Instead of focusing on God and who he is, we want to focus on ourselves and what we want. And so it wasn't just that they disobeyed, ate the poisonous fruit or whatever it was. It was an act of rebellion against this distinct line between creator and creature. And all the way throughout the story, including our stories today, we see that. 
that same tendency, that same bent that we each have, that instead of living in a God-centered, God-glorifying world, we want to build for ourselves self-centered, self-glorifying realities. We try to put ourselves at the center of his story. And so the blurring of this line between creator and creature is the biblical concept of pride. Pride is the blurring of the line between creator and creature, where we put ourselves in his place. Now, all throughout the scriptures, and primarily in a place like the book of Proverbs, we see warnings from the biblical writers to God's people saying, watch out for this thing called pride. Watch out for this tendency to seek for yourself what only belongs to God. And one of the classic passages that you've, if you've heard one verse on pride in the Bible, it's probably this one, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You heard that before? Right. And so let's just take a moment because it actually has a really nice kind of summary of what the Bible's teaching about pride is all about. Pride goes before destruction a haughty spirit before a fall. The first thing it teaches us about pride is that pride is a disease of the heart. Pride is a disease of the heart. The language that the writer of Proverbs uses really talks about pride as something that is a disorder or a disease, the same way you would talk about a cancer or sickness or something like that. It leads to death. That's what's so bad about a sickness, not what it is, but where it goes. Right, And so what kind of disease is pride? What kind of disorder of it is it within our hearts? Augustine's notion is that pride is an inordinate love for ourselves or a disordered love for self. Yeah, there's lots of ways you could try to capture the nature of this disease but that's one of the classic ones that Christians have latched onto. That's a disordered or inordinate love for myself. Now, when I say love for myself, some of you are going, oh, that's not really me. I don't even really like myself, right? Um, that's not what Augustine was talking about when he talked about love. Not a feeling towards yourself or someone else, but for Augustine, love is an orientation. And so the disease of pride takes root in this disordered orientation towards self, self-centeredness, self-focus, right? Where everything is about me. Now, here's what's so interesting. Some, again, would say, oh, I really don't struggle with that kind of pride then. Like, I can think of people that have huge egos and are really proud and, you know, kind of always building themselves up, puffing themselves up, putting others down to make themselves look better. That's really not me. Like, I don't have a single good thought about myself. I don't like the way I look. I don't like where I'm from. I don't like all this stuff about me. In fact, I, every single thought I have is really a, th a negative thought towards myself. What's that called? also called pride, right? <laughs> it continues to be a disordered orientation towards self. Where all my thoughts, whether they're thoughts of glory or thoughts of shame, are thoughts towards me. And my entire inner life is consumed with self. 
I'm oriented towards a world, especially a thought world or a, an emotional world, that has to do with me. Okay? And so he says that's when we talk about pride as being something that leads to destruction, that's the root of it. That's disease that's truly an affliction. This brokenness that's self-centered and seeks a self-centered life instead of God-centered, right? Okay, secondly, from the proverb, we have pride spilling out into our lives. Okay, so this disease doesn't just stay within us, but eventually it manifests itself through these symptoms. Meaning, just like most every other sin, pride may be secret, but it's never private. You know what I mean? It may be secret, but that doesn't mean it's private, meaning it doesn't just affect you, but it begins to affect others eventually. That if you have this disease of pride, eventually it's going to manifest itself in your life. And it's going to begin to affect relationships. So that phrase in Proverbs, a haughty spirit, we don't use the phrase haughty or the word haughty very often. Um, I hope you don't at least. Um, what does haughty mean? Well, it essentially means looking down on others with contempt. It means that this is a manifestation of a disease that really shows up in the context of interactions and relationships with others. Haughtiness doesn't occur in isolation. It occurs in horizontal orientation. That I begin to look down on others, judge others, um, with contempt. So St. Benedict said, pride is the desire to wrench the world and the people in it to my ends. Pride is the desire to wrench the world and the people in it to my ends. And we all know something about what he's talking about. We recognize that desire within ourselves. And it manifests its, itself in lots of different ways. Sometimes it's in this need to be in control and to have things go our way. Other times it's in the need to be praised or recognized or affirmed by others. Either way, we're using others, wrenching the world and those in it for our own ends. It can even have an incredibly passive uh, orientation to it as well going, I'm not willing to engage in conflict. I'm not willing to engage in difficult conversations or the work that's needed to repair relationship because what I need is just to be left alone so I can avoid others and avoid conflict as a means of pursuing my own ends. Okay? So we've all experienced this, the way that human pride can hurt ourselves and hurt others. We've got examples from our own lives of, yeah, I've, I've done this to others. I've used people instead of loved them. And we also know what that feels like on the receiving end as well. Okay, so first pride's this disease in the heart, this orientation towards self primarily. Secondly, it spills out into our lives and affects our relationships. And thirdly, pride is destructive to ourselves. That's the whole teaching of that little verse in Proverbs, that it comes before destruction. It leads to the fall. So this is one of the, the reasons that God and therefore God's people hate sin. 
because it's destructive. And even talking with uh, Linda this week and how, how do we explain this idea of sin to the kids uh, in our church. And they're talking about that these few weeks. Like why would we encourage our kids to obey God? Because God's ways lead to life. And the way of sin leads to death, leads to destruction. God made us, knows us wants our flourishing. And so when he speaks about something like pride and saying that needs to be renounced and avoided and put to death, don't think of it simply in categories of morality or virtue, but really in the sense of when I tell my kids don't go play in the street. It's not really a moral statement. It's for their own good, right? So when the biblical writers say, watch out for pride. Don't put it on, take it off, put it to death. He's saying, why? Because it will kill you. It will destroy you. Why? Why does pride destroy? Well, if the heart of pride is this blurring of the line between creature and creator, where I assume God's place and thereby assume a world that revolves around me, I'm now living out of tune with ultimate reality. So, to live a self-centered life, we're not just saying it's unchristian or immoral or something like that. We're saying it's actually not true. You don't have to pretend that the world doesn't revolve around you. It really doesn't. Do you get what I'm saying? I think this is maybe even a little bit harder for us Bendites to believe. Like, we have this sense that we have made it to the promised land where this place and everything in it exists for our pleasure and our enjoyment. Right? And where we say, my life is better than your vacation. Um, self-centeredness shows up in kind of sneaky ways. Not in the same ways it does in major urban settings or other places across the country, but we're secretly here to live a self-centered life. At least I am. And it's not like, hey, try to pretend that the world doesn't revolve around you. It actually doesn't. You are not God. You are not at the center of this story. You're not even at the center of your story. And so the reason pride leads to destruction is because it's built upon a lie. A haughty spirit destroys us. And here's what's so crazy, the paradox of pride. Pride is actually a form of insanity if you think about it. It's a love of self that because it's built upon a lie, becomes self-hatred. So the more that I love myself, the more I hurt myself. That's the insanity of pride. And so in summary of that proverb, pride is a disease of the heart that spills out into our lives as the desire to control and dominate others and is destructive to ourselves because it becomes a form of self-hatred. So, the biblical encouragement is put pride to death. Renounce it. 
take it off as the people of God. This cannot be the way that we go on living. It will lead to destruction. So what's the answer then? On the other side of the equation from pride, we have this idea of humility. And the passage that Allison read in Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll go from now, go from here. So if you want to turn there, you can. Philippians chapter 2 is really believed to be the first place in ancient Greek literature where pride is talked about as a virtue. The Apostle Paul here, writing this letter to the church in Philippi, talks about this thing, humility, as something good, as something we should strive for or move towards. And nobody else in the world that he was living in had ever written anything like that. Humility was not a virtue, but it was a curse associated with servants, with the low of society, with the despised, with those that had the life that nobody would ever aspire to. A servant was considered humble, and of course you wouldn't want to be that. How does Paul introduce himself in the letter to the Philippians? Turn a page over. 1-1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So in this new kingdom that's touched down through Christ, everything is upside down. And Paul goes, our identity is that of servants. Or even in some translations, slaves. Like the worst thing we can imagine. He goes, we are slaves to Jesus and his gospel. And therefore, in the name of putting pride to death, we pursue this thing called humility. Okay, so again, it's shy. If you talk too much about it, it's going to (laughs) hide. And that's true from where I'm standing and from where we are as well. So if the if the stem or the root of pride stems out of looking too much at ourself, thinking too much about ourself, focusing too much about ourself, then how do we pursue humility? By looking at someone else. Right? If you spend all of your time pursuing humility by thinking about yourself, looking at yourself, focusing on yourself, and figuring out how humble am I? Was that humble of me? I should have been more humble there. How can I be more humble tomorrow? I really need to be, God help me become more humble. Will you guys pray for me so I can become more humble? If you pursue humility by looking at yourself, what does that make you? Weird, man. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Annoying. And proud. It's what may be called a secondary virtue. That it's only achieved by indirect pursuit. That when you go after it directly, it's going to run away and it's a self-defeating thing. And so, pride is focusing on self. Humility starts with focusing on someone else. Well, who should we direct our focus to in order to pursue humility? Really? Really? Where, where are we going to look? Find some TED talk about how to be humble and try to do what they say? Well, as Christians, we look to Jesus. And we look to him as the one who not only models humility 
in his incarnation, his life, teaching, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, ascension, all done in humility. But the one who actually empowers us to live humble lives as well. And so Jesus imparts humility to us as a gift. And he does it in a few different ways in in this passage. We'll we'll look at it. The first is that Jesus exposes our pride. Okay, So if we are blind or unaware that we are afflicted with this disease of the heart, by looking at a passage like this, or really Jesus' entire story as it's contained in the Gospels, and we start to look at him as what you might call the true man, the true human, the one person or made in God's image and likeness that perfectly bears that image, we look at him and go, oh, his life's different than mine. <laughs> That's what humanity is supposed to look like. Jesus doesn't just come and show us how to be Christian. He actually comes and shows us how to be human. And when we look at Jesus, his life, listen to his teaching, see the way that he treated people, and ultimately uh, his purpose that he gave himself to. It's a life marked by humility. This other-centeredness, whether that other was his father in heaven who, who sent him on this mission, or those that he came to love and to serve and to save. And so Jesus exposes our pride by simply showing us what true humanity is supposed to look like. Now here's what's so crazy. We said that pride, in essence, is the blurring of the line between creator and creature when it goes this way. When humans blur that line, it's pride. But what Paul seems to be saying is that when it goes the other way, it's humility. Let's pick up where we left off, verse 6. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And he humbled himself in appearance as a man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." And so, as humans, when we blur the line between creator and creature, it's pride. When God does it, it's humility. In Jesus, God lowers himself. The creator becomes creature. God becomes man. And therefore, we are invited to experience this intimacy, this union, and in a, in a crazy way, if you don't take this the wrong way, almost like an equality with God. Obviously not that, that we are God, but that we are invited to sit face to face to him, united with Christ. Jesus gives this incredible gift. He makes himself nothing. He lowers himself and blurs that line. And so here's the beautiful thing. Not only does Jesus model humility, 
by exposing it for us. But he reveals that this is at the very heart of what our God is like. In Christ, we have a picture of a humble God. A humble God. When he says, being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Other translations may something to be grasped, something to be held on to. He's not saying Jesus didn't think he could attain equality with God. We know that's not what Christian theology has taught. It means Jesus didn't take his equality with God, being in God nature, and hold it for himself not something to be grasped in the sense of clenched for self. But instead, he takes that incredible blessing and privilege and he turns and he gives it. And so again, in the incarnation, in his life, death, resurrection, Jesus exposes or reveals what God is really like. And in specific, he reveals that the God of the Bible is not a grasper, he's a giver. His orientation towards us is not to use us, to take from us, to receive from us, to ask from us. That's not the primary nature of the relationship God wants with us. Instead, what Jesus reveals is that God is a giver, a self-emptier, who loves by giving of himself to his people. And I think that's so important for us to pay attention to because oftentimes we are blind to this reality and instead we believe this lie that God is always asking for more from me. Sometimes that's what even makes coming to a church gathering like this or participating in a worship service like something that we don't actually look forward to or maybe don't even enjoy in the moment. Because it's like, what's God going to ask from me today? What does God want me to give up this time? What does God want me for to, to do for him this week? We, we rarely say that out loud, but we often feel that, Right? Like, gosh, God just constantly asking me to give and give and give more and more of my stuff, more and more of my money, more and more of my time, more and more of my energy and my talents. Like, God just wants and wants and wants. That's not the God that Jesus reveals. He's not a grasper. He's a giver. And he invites us to come to him in these moments and in many other moments throughout our week, and say, I want to bless you with my presence. I want to pour out my love and my grace and my mercy upon you and into your life. I want to feed you. I want to fill you. I want to give of myself to you. Jesus reveals a God who in his very nature embodies this idea of humility and loves, loves, loves to fill the lives of his people with his presence and grace and glory and joy. 
That doesn't always mean things are going to go your way. doesn't always mean you're going to get that sweet ride or that cool hookup or whatever it is. It means you're going to get something better. You're going to get God himself, and that's what we have in this beautiful gospel story. Jesus not only models humility and exposes it, exposes our lack of it, but he also bears our destruction. Remember, humility leads to destruction. Well, what we're told here is that the humble one has taken the consequences of our pride upon himself. Humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He bears our destruction. So he exposes it, but then he forgives. He helps us to see the truth about who we are and how we've been living and what we've been telling ourselves about ourselves. And he goes, no, that's not it. I'm going to expose it for you, but then I'm going to forgive. And I'm going to heal. And I'm going to cover. And I'm going to give. So here's what's so crazy. In creation, God makes humanity in his image and likeness. But in redemption, God makes himself in humanity's image and likeness. This great reversal in the biblical story. In the beginning, he makes us like him. And to make things right, he makes himself like us. Verses right there in verse 7. He makes himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. An exact echo back to Genesis. The God who makes humans in his likeness now makes himself in ours. Why? So that we could be with him. And that he could be with us. And that we could enjoy the life that he intended us for from the very beginning. And the source of this glory, the source of this wonderful invitation is not just by trying to model our life after Jesus, although of course we take his teachings and ethics incredibly seriously. But there's actually something even deeper. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, there's this famous place where Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, burdened. Which is already crazy, right? Like when Jesus is gonna throw a party, he goes, here's who inv- who's invited. The weary and burdened. The burnt out, the stressed out, the needy, the poor, the broken, come to me. If I'm throwing a party, to be honest, that's not who I want there, right? Come to me, all you who are fun and nice and funny and cool and smart and spiritual. We'll have a great time. Jesus says, no. All those who are at the end of your rope, all those who have nowhere else to go, come to me. And then verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What did Jesus just say about himself? I am gentle and humble in heart. Did you know that this is the only autobiographical statement we have Jesus making about his own character? In all of the Gospels, this is the one place where he goes, here's something about me. Here's what I'm like. If you really get to know me, here's what you'll find. And what does he say? 
I'm gentle and I am humble in heart. That's what I'm like, Jesus says. Which all of a sudden is this crazy thing where I'm going, so the true human, the one human who bears God's image and likeness perfectly is able to come out and say, I am a humble person. Now, how did he get there? Through trying really hard to be humble? Through focusing on all the places where he's prideful? Through battling, right? By nature, humility is this other-centeredness, this God and other orientation. He goes, that's why I'm here. That's why I came. And he invites us to come and to find rest in him. Philippians 2 starts with this idea that we have been united with Christ. Paul celebrating the finished work of Christ through his death and resurrection and the gift of his Holy Spirit means that not only are we saved and forgiven from our sins, but we now have been united with Christ, made one with him. So we now get to participate in the relationship between Jesus and the Father. We are invited in in a strange, mysterious way, almost to sit with God as equals. This incredible, incredible work. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, he would go on and say, then live the life of Christ. In humility, value others above yourselves. And then in verse five, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Okay, so I'll close with this. When we talk about pride, humility, when we talk about living this kind of life or or letting Christ live this kind of life through us, the context of this conversation, here within Philippians and really every other place it's talked about in scripture, the context of the conversation is the Christian community. He doesn't just say, have the same mindset as Christ. What does he say? In your relationships with one another. Who's one another? Well, Paul's specifically talking to a group of people, an early church community, a community of Christ followers that are trying to figure out how do we follow Jesus and live with him in this time and place with each other. And so for us, we can't take it and simply try to apply it on an individual basis. He goes, in your relationships, in the way that you guys treat one another within the church, in the way that you talk to each other, in the way you talk about each other, in the way that your small group or communion group or whatever gathers together throughout the week and in the way that you communicate. On Sunday mornings, when you gather for worship, when you get together throughout the week for a cup of coffee or for a meal, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And so this is an invitation that has incredibly high implications, not just for kind of our relationship with God, but for the way that we relate to one another. And then he lays out some really straightforward ways that we do that. How do we do that? Well, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Value others above yourself. 
Don't just look to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. And Paul's like, so do that. Just do that. And you'll find yourself on the path to life. You'll find yourself in a place of rest for your souls. And so for us, that means we see each other differently. And even what it means to be part of a church begins to be redefined. Where when I come on Sunday mornings, this isn't just a place where I get, I get to measure it based on what's going on in me. And whether I liked the sermon or whether I liked the music or whether people interacted with me the way I wanted them to. He's saying, no, that kind of mentality doesn't fit here. We're showing up to bear the image of the God who gives Right to selflessly show up, entering into these relationships and going, this is way more than about me. In fact, maybe church isn't about me at all. Maybe actually the reason all of you guys came here isn't because of me. <laughs> maybe we're here gathered around the person of Jesus. And that would change the way that we interact with these moments. And secondly, others of us, we need to learn how to need each other. We need to learn how to enter into vulnerable relationships and conversations that would allow and empower the other members of Christ's body around us to show up and to love and to give. And there's obviously a point where that gets way out of whack and isn't what I'm talking about at all, right? But at the heart of this invitation, have the same mindset of Christ. Be his people together. And let's let our relationships model this incredible display of God's glory that we have a God who's not a grasper but he's a giver and so each week during this Lent uh, series we are inviting you to come to the table to the communion table and the language that we use around communion is incredibly intentional and connects tightly to what we've talked about this morning that a lot of times casually Christians say that we're going to take communion But what we're actually doing is receiving it. There's a big difference, isn't there? That we don't have to pry God's grace out of his clenched fists. But he offers himself to us as a giver. And through the bread and through the cup, invites us in a very real sense to participate in Jesus' invitation in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: Come to me, all you who are weary. Not just come to church, right? Not just read a good Christian book or go to a Christian school, right? All that's great. But Jesus says, no, come to me. It's an invitation to a person, even more than to a religion or to a set of beliefs or anything else. It's an invitation to a person. Jesus says, come to me. And for centuries and centuries now, as followers of Jesus, we've understood that this table, this simple meal of bread and juice or wine is his way, one of his ways of giving himself to us. Come and receive me again. Come and take me into yourself. Let me feed you. Let me love you. Let me grace you with my presence and with my power, with my cleansing and with my forgiveness. 
And so there's a mysterious element to this whole thing, which we won't even try to explain. But by faith we come and say, Jesus, what you have declared to be true about me, I want to live into that reality. And I don't want to live a self-centered life. I want to live a you-centered life, not just because it's more moral, but because it's more true. It's the way things actually are. So this table will center us this morning. And as you come to the table this morning, finally, I want to invite you. There's a stack of little uh, white notes, note cards, and there's pens at each station as well. And I want you to come and reflect on this question and write your answer on your card as you take from the bread and cup. And the question is this. What's something about you? What's the thing about you that God is most proud of? As we come, we're focusing on God, what he's declared to be true, what he declares to be right and wrong and up and down and good and bad, and saying, when we think of pride, we think of all these things that we've done or the things that we have or the accomplishments that may or may not be the thing that God is actually proudest of when he looks at us. And so we'll flip this whole thing on its head this morning. And so Alice and the band will come, lead us in a time of responding through worship and song. And I'll invite you to come to the table, take a piece of paper, write your answer to this question. What's the thing God is most proud of about me? And uh, then you can just leave it on the table. You can fold it or crumple it or whatever you want. Just leave it on the table. And we'll fill up... uh, this thing with, with God's word, with God's perspective and believing in God's life. So will you, will you stand with me and we'll, uh, we'll pray. Oh, Father, we are so grateful that you are a giving God who has taken it upon yourself to reveal yourself to us, to show us who you really are and what you're really like through becoming one of us in your son, Jesus. And you expose our sin, you expose our total uh, need for you, but you also meet that need and you forgive that sin. And you invite us by your son to come and to commune with you, to dine with you, to feed on you, and to let our weary souls find rest in you. And so this morning, God, as people from all different places, from all, having all different kinds of weeks, all different kinds of experiences, at all different moments in our faith walk, we thank you that you are the one God for everyone. And invites, you invite all of us to come and to find life in you. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for your life, death, and resurrection. Thank you for your broken body and your shed blood. And that in you, we find everything that we were ever made for. We trust you with our whole life in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray.